Hello, Precision Insights Podcast listeners. This is your host, Dave Wolf with Genexus. I'm thrilled to take you on another journey related to precision medicine. I'm excited about today. Today's episode, our guest for this journey is Thu Nguyen. Thu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Can you just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your background? Yes. Um, so hello, everyone. My name is Theo. I'm a clinical pharmacist. Um, I've been an inpatient clinical pharmacist for six years now. Um, after graduation from um, pharmacy school, I went to, or I completed two years of residency and I focused on geriatrics. And then during those years of postgraduate um, experiences, I also gained a lot of passion for transitional care as well. So those are my two extremely passionate areas of mine. And um, I am particularly interested in transition of care only because it hasn't been talked about very much. There's not a lot of focus on it, even though I see so many issues with it during um, in my practice. And I really want to talk about, about it, spread awareness that this is an area that we really need to focus on. Thanks so much. How do you define transition of care? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a specific, like a official definition for transition of care. For me, transition of care is anytime a patient is moving through the healthcare system and is being passed from one provider to another provider or a healthcare team to another healthcare team. So an example would be a patient coming from an outpatient setting home into the emergency room. They then get admitted into the hospital even from the emergency room to the inpatient room, that is a transition of care point. Then let's say they get discharged to a facility, um, like a long-term care facility, that's another transition of care and they go home and that's another transition of care because they're being passed along um, through various you know, providers, doctors, nurses, healthcare team, and everybody needs to be aware of what's had happened. Um, throughout the whole process. And that's, these points are where a lot of errors can occur. A lot of, I guess, so to speak, balls can be dropped, I guess, um, a lot of healthcare gaps. And so um, I really want to bring up this issue of how do we make this transition smoother for patients, reduce medication errors specifically as a pharmacist, but potentially just any errors and um, reduce any kind of readmission or return back to you know, the emergency room or to the healthcare setting. Well, especially with the, the geriatric patients, you mentioned uh, that that's kind of your specialty as yeah. well. And all the polypharmacy, all the medications that they're on, mm-hmm. um, you know, they come from a home. I, I guess there's, there's certain touch points, right? So you do a home med rec when they get it into the ER. Yeah. And where have you seen that home med rec be, be most effective? And by, by who was doing a home med rec? Is it the nurses, the yeah. pharmacists, the pharmacy tech? This is the issue is that I don't think um, the process has been very standardized amongst you know, all the healthcare settings or all the healthcare systems. And so it depends on where you go. Some hospitals will have... Um, pharmacy technicians doing the med history. Um, most of the hospitals will rely on nurses just because they're already doing a lot of that medication or that you know um, past medical history uh, uptake. And so part of that would be 
home medications, but oftentimes nurses are not the, maybe they're not most equipped to do the best medication history, just because they have a lot of things going on and med history can take a lot of time. And then there's little nuances like metoprolol ER versus IR that they may not be paying attention to, or just so many things that are more pharmacy focused that we wouldn't really expect a nurse to be, you know, focusing on. Um, and then there are other facilities with a transition of care team, and they have pharmacists and pharmacy technicians working together to get the best medication history. The, the biggest issue is medica medication history does take a lot of time. It's especially if the patient comes in and they're on 10 medications at home, they're elderly and they don't know what they take. Um, and they go to seven different specialists outpatient, you know, the PCP's office is not going to have all the information. So there's just a lot of things that can go wrong at that first touch point that you said. And then all the errors that occur at that point then gets moved along through everything else. And so this is where it's really important for people to be aware of where the, the pitfalls are. Yeah, I can, I can see that going on. So you have you say you get admitted from the ED. So that's a transition to care, like you said earlier. Mm -hmm. And some of those meds are continued um, in the inpatient. Others are just a one-time dose in the ED. So that, that's another potential breakpoint, right? Um, you know, which, which meds are continued and why? And then, then they're ready yeah. for discharge. And do they, do they go to a rehab hospital or a nursing facility or discharge to home? Mm -hmm. So again, that's, that's kind of the, the discharge, yeah. discharge med rec again. So there's so mm -hmm. many points of failure, potentially. Very many. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, it, when they go to a, to a long-term care facility or some sort of acute rehab, the medications get changed there too. So mm -hmm. the information from the hospital is no longer relevant, relevant potentially um, by the time that they're discharged from the you know, the rehab or whatever facility back to home. So it's so difficult for the patient to say, who do I get in touch with on what medications am I supposed to take also after they, you know, leave that kind of care and they go back home to being more independent. So yeah, there's that issue too. And then, then I'll take it a step further is who, who keeps track of that when they get home, you know? Exactly. You know, so, I mean, that's, that's some of the, some of the breakdown. And then you talk about different IT systems too. So, you know, you mentioned the primary care may have. Sorry. You can cut those barkies out. Hold on. Let me tell them. <laughs> That's okay. Was it something I said? <laughs> there's, there's some noise going on. He's very not happy about it. Okay. Oh, okay. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so, so, okay. so then you talk about the IT systems. Um, you know, they, they come in from a primary care practice. They may be on Athena, for example, and they may not have all the medications and then they get admitted to the hospital. They could be on Epic or Cerner. And um, then what's the, then they get discharged to a long-term care and they may be on frameworks. Yeah. So it's all mm -hmm. different IT systems. That's one barrier, right? Yeah, I, the data sharing or patient information um, is not, when, when the information is not readily available, it's just additional work for 
you know, whoever, the provider, the pharmacist, the nurse, or whatever, um, to try to obtain that information. If it was more readily available, let's, let's say a patient is being kind of transferred around, but within the same health system where they do have access to the patient's information, it's just so much easier to understand what had happened. Um, but that's not the case a lot of the times. And then you can't expect a lot of the specialists to be within that same health system either. But it would be ideal for everybody, even the community pharmacist, to have access to, to something, you know, lab or whatever. Um, and I just don't understand why it has been so difficult to try to really standardize or kind of compile those important information because you can't always expect the patient or caregiver to know exactly what's going on. Um, you know, health literacy is already an issue. So how do we communicate between each other like that? Um, we also very much practice in silos. I mean, as a hospital pharmacist, I have no idea what goes on in the community setting. I really don't. And, um, and I wish that I had more knowledge. It's just that I spent eight hours at the hospital all day. Like when would I even know what happens to the patient when they bring that prescription and, and take it to their community pharmacy? I, I don't know. So it would be great if the community pharm pharmacist can reach out to me if there's a question or something like that, you know, but there's, there's no way we can't communicate with each other. There's a huge silo issue too um, between the different health teams. Yeah, that's that, you know, interoperability has been talked about for probably 15, 15 years or more around, you know, the way that systems can talk to one another. Mm -hmm. But the advances we made in, in the security of the cloud has made a big impact, you know, um, and how do we leverage that and, and plug in different tools into that to make sure that that patient's care is optimized. And, and I think that a lot of large organizations in IT uh, solution vendors are, are working on that, but it, it needs to happen. Um, mm -hmm. we, we so, yeah. you know, the, the cost of an adverse event, you know, I've seen numbers up to the billions, um, mm -hmm. you know, readmissions yeah, you mentioned readmissions. earlier, you know, mm -hmm. very, very expensive yeah. to the point that Medicare may not pay for that readmission if it happened in a certain period of time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. there's a, I mean, CMS has the um, readmission reduction program that they, that they want, um, you know, hospitals to be aware of is that there are certain disease states that they're very focused on to reduce those 30 day readmissions. So um, there's definitely some financial repercussions too with, with those medication errors and not just the patient's you know, quality of life and, and health, um, that's part of it. So yeah, that's, those are all of the issues that's going on. I think what's interesting is there's, so, there's a lot of research out there with, well, this program did this, and this is our transition of care team, and this is our data, and here's here's uh, this new, you know, the, I wanted to pull up this article This published a research that was um, recently published in the chest, um, the chest journal, and uh, it's called Optimizing COPD Acute Care Patient Outcomes Using a Standardized Transition Bundle and Care Coordinator, and um, it was somewhat a randomized clinical trial. Um, and I read through it and it was, it was a great trial, but there was a lot of issues with the trials. And this is what I see too, with a lot of transition of care research is that 
it's not, they're never perfect. This particular article said that it's a randomized clinical trial, but it kind of isn't. Um, and I can go, this is like another podcast where I talk about this, but what I wanted to bring up is that the data and the research behind transition of care is not available. It's not always showing positive impact on readmission. It's every single study and every single research paper I've read is doing something different. But I imagine if, you know, there's technology that can really emerge everybody, I think just by doing that can improve um, a lot of the issues that I'm running, you know, that, that we're going to be talking about and that I see. Because then we have, we're no longer necessarily working in these silos, we can write notes to each other, we can see what's going on in the different care settings. And so it really minimizes a lot of issues and it gives the providers and the healthcare team a lot more information that we need. So it's, it's got to be part of their workflow and it, it's you've almost got a, a through patient portal. You got a day patient portal, right? Yeah. So regardless if I'm visiting Phoenix, I um, might, and something were to happen, um, I can see the portal there. So we, we've got to get to there. What are right. some, how do you measure transition of care? What do you mean by that? Can you, you, you know, some of these studies you talk about, mm. Yeah. measuring, you know, what are some of the metrics that are measured in, yeah. in, in defining the results of uh, tra- transition to care? Um, a lot of, most of them are readmission reduction um, data, which is, is a lot harder than you think because you do need to kind of match your samples, your cohorts that you've picked to follow, and then you have to kind of match those group. Um, and then for this particular study that I, I brought up, um, they also measured, you know, the, the rate of following up with a, a primary care provider um, and then rate of ED visits and just certain things like that. So those are the things that we measure a lot. And then there's other, other studies with pharmacists where they measure the types of interventions pharmacists make when they are involved in transition of care. Um, so there are different types of you know, outcomes that they, they review. And the nice thing is that those outcomes are very, um, very similar between studies. It's just the method <laughs> themselves are very different and also the patient population. So it's difficult to kind of figure out for, for sure which patient really needs this, which patient would you actually see benefits if you put, um, if you implement some sort of transition of care service within that group? Because it's, it wouldn't benefit everybody. You know, if somebody's going in the hospital, they're on four medications at home and then they're discharged on an an antibiotic for five more days. Do we really need someone to be following them super closely versus an older patients with 10 meds from home, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. And I I've seen like, there was a term probably in the last decade about, um, a medical home, which was kind of a, a transition to care model. What are some successful models you've seen? Because I, I, I think that you've had some experience with a transition to care team. Yeah. It, and, even, and who are the members on that team? Yes. Um, so like I've mentioned, everybody does something different. So I've seen so many different types of transition of care team. I've had an experience with during my PGY1, they had um, a pharmacist and a nurse calling patients post-discharge. This, they also had some sort of funding where the pharmacist would go into the patient's home 
and you know either deliver a scale that they need to or provide more education that they needed to. So that was one model that I thought was working really well, but at the same time, they are serving a very small community. So of course they're able to travel and see patients, you know, post-discharge and things like that. And the hospital wouldn't be spending a lot of money to fund this program. And I think they had other types of funding as well from community resources. Um, another hospital I, I saw, there were two nurses that would call patients post-discharge. There was no pharmacist involvement, just two nurses, and they would do a lot of just follow-up calls. Um, where I worked previously, I was doing transition of care service really just by myself. It was a pharmacist-specific RAM service, um, and I was utilizing you know, students on rotation and residents on rotations with me to do a lot, to reach a, a bigger, um, you know, patient population. So, and then we were kind of collecting data on that too. So everybody does something different, but I do believe that the same errors or the same barriers exist in the sense that when you do a transition of care program, you need to have everybody kind of all in. You need to have the, the physicians being aware of the service that they're, you know, uh, invested in it too. Case management, you need to have, you know, various administrators being um, invested in this, in this service. You can't just have two people doing, you know, follow-up calls and then just be like, I think that's enough because it is um, very much a system that's broken and you can't just have, you know, two people doing it without anybody kind of supporting them and uh, being on board basically. So I think that's a huge barrier. I also don't know, you know, a lot of the studies that have come out, they, um, for, with transition of care, a lot of them are from bigger medical centers, um, teaching hospitals, for example. So what about, you know, your smaller community hospitals? How do they get the funding for this service? How do they allocate hours, et cetera, et cetera? So to be honest with you, I don't know if I've been in one place long enough to see a true success. I've definitely heard about it. I've talked to people who've been in it. Um, but I think similar barriers exist in all of the, in all the programs. Yeah. So, you know, underpinning all that, you mentioned it a couple of times is kind of the funding, whether it's through a grant that the pharmacists do the work mm -hmm. or so it's the whole reimbursement model that seems to be in conflict with this as well. Um, it's almost yeah. a, a fee for service model as we go to more value based care pricing and, mm -hmm. you know, measuring those true quality measures. And, you know, with things such as reduced readmissions, et cetera. So that may help, but also it's, it, the resources are expensive, right? Mm -hmm. And to put a pharmacist in the ED to do med rec or home med yeah. rec, for example, is expensive. <laughs> um, the pharmacy tech, I've seen a lot of studies around pharmacy techs doing it. Um, and nurses, actually nurses do a fantastic job mm -hmm. with it as well. Um, but it's still, there, there's some gaps there and, and, yeah. and it's, it's, it's all this, we have the, the reimbursement issues. We have the staffing issues. We have the complexity of the patient issues, the, you yes. know, and, and the different settings that the patient's in. So I, I'm just trying to envision, you know, what's that solution, you know, cloud-based yeah. interoperable IT is essential. Um, 
So you have a true picture of that patient. And this kind of goes to like precision prescribing and making sure, because that way, if you have all the data elements, you can get the right drugs for the right patient at that right mm -hmm. time, right? Mm -hmm. but, if, but if they're all in these silos, um, mm -hmm. in these fiefdoms, you know, the different institutions, um, that doesn't help the patient. Yeah, definitely. I know. Um, yeah. So, sometimes when I talk about transition of care, I almost feel a little bit overwhelmed with all the things that you kind of have to work against. Um, the system is not right now equipped to really have successful transition of care programs. A huge part of it is we don't quite know which patient benefits from this yet. You know, like for example, with medications, let's let's say aspirin, for example, we used to give everybody aspirin for some sort of heart preventative measures, whatever. And as the studies go on, we realize, oh, it would only benefit this particular group. So let's focus on those particular groups and let's not give it to everybody. And I think that's the same with transition of care because we are already so, you know, the resources are expensive. We don't know where the reimbursements are coming from. We can't just be throwing a service like this at everybody and hope things will stick because then you won't see the true benefits from it. Um, and then what you will see is just, okay, this is costing a lot of money and we don't see the benefits. Even though you see the med errors that come back in the hospital all the time, even though you talk to patients and you're shocked that they don't know you know, why this is, this is a medication that you should be using every day versus as needed. You know, you're, you're just yeah. shocked that no one has discussed this with you or how do you not know this already? What's going on? You know? So the, the problem is there. It's just the solution is, it's, it's taking some time to, to come into, into place. Yeah. I I'm optimistic because, you know, we've mentioned many of the barriers and and the frustration we've had as healthcare professionals um, not meeting the needs of the patient in this context. But mm -hmm. I, I think that there, there's a movement towards value-based care. There's a movement towards interoperability and cloud-based solutions. So the data can be at the provider's hands when needed. Um, so I think we've, we've brought a lot of those, those uh, barriers to light, um, mm -hmm. but I'm still optimistic that we're, we're, getting on the right track. Um, you Definitely. know, technology's catching up. And um, I had somebody tell me one time, you know, you know, healthcare is where banking was 10 years ago from a technical <laughs> standpoint. And, wow. and we still have a long way to go. Um, yeah. But I, as you know, passionate professionals such as yourself, carrying that torch and at least identifying what the barriers are, that's, that's how you find out what to work on. Yeah. Um, so what true. are some other things you hope to do as you continue your journey as a pharmacist? <laughs> yeah, I, um, right now I'm hoping to, kind of what I mentioned before, I sometimes I get overwhelmed that there's no solution, but I do think that just talking about this and making sure that people are more aware of what's going on um, is maybe one of the first steps. And then we continue to build upon all of that. Um, the other thing I really like to do is reach out to um, family, you know, family members, caregivers, and patients, and also providing them with this kind of education and allowing them to, or providing them with the resources to prepare 
for maybe hospitalization or even post-discharge of what kinds of things they need to be aware of. Um, I think that's going to be my next step in this journey is I've, I've given enough information to the, to the professionals in the field. Hopefully they're working on something, but now it's, it's time to reach out to the caregivers as well and let them know, um, you know, how else they can kind of prepare on, um, through this journey. So and how do you <laughs> that's do my that? plan. How do you do that? Uh, so far I've reached out to, um, you know, care, caregiver support groups. And it's been really, yeah, it's been really cool getting to talk to some of them and letting them know, you know, if they have a podcast or they have an audience that I can kind of use that, my voice to shed light on some of those issues. And, um, you know, through social media, honestly, I've, you know, I think the way that you guys have reached out to me was through social media. So I'm hoping to use that same power and providing those guys with those resources. So lots of opportunities out there, you know, exactly. <laughs> I'm really excited for that. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Anything else you want to share? Um, not at this time, but I really appreciate you guys having me on here. I think spreading my message and using my voice is such a great opportunity for me. And I really appreciate it. I encourage you to continue to use that voice and make the impact that you're making on just not just the health professionals, but as you mentioned, the caregivers, the patients themselves, mm -hmm. the ones who really matter and who are thirsting for that knowledge as well. Um, yeah. Fantastic. How might people get in touch with you? Right now, I have my LinkedIn account that I've, uh, you know, I'm pretty active on. I respond to messages as I can. <laughs> I'm not always, I'm not always the best at that, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best and, um, writing a lot of posts about transition of care and just my experience as a pharmacist. And, um, yeah, that's, that's where they can find me at this time. LinkedIn is it. All right. Well, LinkedIn. thank you so much, Thu. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. And, and I can't wait to, to see what you do, uh, to, to break down some of these barriers. Yes. Thanks so much. <laughs>